Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Well, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's good to see you guys. Well, we are in the midst of our Adventually series, looking at the genealogy of Jesus, seeing more clearly how he is our hope and how we can carry that hope every day in every situation that we're in. And when we read this genealogy, I mean, I, we can glaze over the name saying so-and-so is the father of so-and-so because there's, there's no action, there's no character development. It often just feels like a list. Um, but for the Jewish people and the Far East ancient culture, genealogies were not just your lineage. They showed how you are part of a family, part of a tribe. It described who you were. It was part of your identity. And well tucked into this genealogy are some women who are tainted with some sexual scandal. Tamar, who prostituted herself to sleep with her father-in-law. Rahab, the mother of Boaz, who married Ruth, was a prostitute. Both of whom were not Jewish, they were foreigners. And today we'll, we'll be talking about Bathsheba, who was involved in an adulterous affair. So why were these women chosen by God and identified to be part of the line that would eventually bring us Jesus? Now we know that all the men in the genealogy had to be descendants of Abraham for Jesus to be considered a Jew. Therefore, the only way that there could be any Gentiles in Jesus' ancestry would have been through women. So when Matthew presents this lineage to his Jewish audience, he's declaring that Jesus is fully, legitimately a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, but he's not only a Jew, and he's not only for Jews. When Matthew says, Jesus was born the son of Tamar, the son of Rahab, the son of Ruth, the son of Bathsheba, God is saying, this Messiah is also for women, for foreigners, and for those who have been immoral. This Messiah is for everyone. Jesus' lineage pushes back on anyone who would treat somebody with disdain, like some group that would be considered more like an outsider or second class. And if you have ever felt that rejection, God is saying you are wanted and you are worthy to be a part of his family. And so today we're going to focus a more on the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, does anybody remember the VeggieTales version of David and Bathsheba's story? I love my duck. Anyway, no? Okay, just maybe a few. Anyway, from a rooftop, King George spotted Junior's rubber ducky and had to have it, even though he had so many other rubber duckies. It gets to the point. um, It's definitely more PG. And I was going to have a youth um, read the scripture today, but then I rethought that one. The genealogy might look innocuous, but when you get to its backstory, it really is dicey. So here we go. I'll do it today. In 2 Samuel, it says, One evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. 
Now skipping to verse 12, then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants and he did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Later, the prophet Nathan says to David in 2 Samuel 12, But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her, and he made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Now, we don't know a lot about Bathsheba, like her actions or her thoughts. All we're pretty much told is that she's very beautiful. And one day she's bathing, and David was on the roof. He saw her. And by the way, Bathsheba was not bathing on her roof. It's contrary to the, you know, the lyrics of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Um, it was David on the roof, not Bathsheba. And when he saw her, he asked, who is she? And he's told, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, Iliam was the son of one of David's closest advisors, that making Bathsheba the granddaughter. And although Uriah was a Hittite, it didn't mean that he wasn't a part of Israel's covenant community. Uriah had converted to Judaism and was one of David's mighty men, the best and most devoted of his soldiers. As one of his mighty men, Uriah had risked his life to save David's life. So Uriah is not just any man, but one to whom David knew and he owed his life to. So we see that David may not have known Bathsheba personally, but he did know her family. Yet none of that mattered. In a moment of lust, David summons Bathsheba. We're told that she had just purified herself from being unclean, which means that she was following the Mosaic law regarding her monthly period, and she was not pregnant. She arrived and David slept with her. We need to remember the powerlessness of women and the power of a king in that culture. Because when the king summons you, you go. And when the king wants to sleep with you, there's not a lot you can do. There's not a higher authority that you can appeal to. The king can take what he wants. And a little later, we hear the only words that Bathsheba speaks in this story, and that's, I'm pregnant. Now, the account isn't explicit, but I suspect that Bathsheba heard that David summoned Uriah back from the battlefield, that David gave him food, got him drunk at a party, but Bathsheba never sees Uriah. Out of respect to the other soldiers, he never went home to her. She probably heard how he was sent back to battlefield and that he was killed, and she grieves her husband. And then she's summoned again like a, like a piece of property. And she's taken as David's wife. And I don't think it would have um, taken much for Bathsheba to recognize what David was doing. She understood the crime and the cover-up. I mean, and it looked like David got away with it, like nothing ever happened, because his life just went on for a while. What would it have been like for you to know this about a man who, had, who impregnated you, who took your husband and now has taken you as his wife? What would it have been like to know about this great hero of Israel? He was the victor over the Philistines, the king of the land. 
He just got away with adultery, murder, and numerous lies. Basically, he broke half the Ten Commandments, you know? And all of this was done by a man who wrote many of the Psalms, including Psalm 40, where David publicly proclaimed, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Now, I'm sure that David meant it when he wrote this and he sang it, yet he also committed those horrific acts. Which brings us to the first lesson that we can learn from David and Bathsheba's story, that every person is capable of the worst actions, even the best people. Like even those of us who think that we would never do that, something like that, who are committed followers of Christ, without the grace of God, we too can fall prey to sin. And in the next chapter, we see that God sends the prophet Nathan to King David and proceeds to tell David about a situation with a rich man. Now, this would have been a normal thing to do because a king's job was to sit in the court, rule over, and say, this is the just thing to do. And Nathan shares this. There was a rich man who had lots of sheep and cattle, and there was a poor man who only had one precious lamb whom he loved. The lamb ate from the poor man's table, and he played with his children, and he slept in his arms. That lamb was like a daughter to him. Well, one day, the rich man had a visitor, and in this culture of hospitality, you would have to serve a nice meal for them. But the rich man didn't want to do anything to his animals, so he went and took the lamb from the poor man. He slaughtered it and prepared it for his guest. Well, upon hearing that violation, King David is outraged and delivers his judgment. The man who did this must die and repay him fourfold. Now, the Mosaic law requires you to pay you know, fourfold anything you stole, but nothing about capital punishment for a crime like this. Why do you think that David has such an intense response? I mean, as king, he is supposed to be this great leader, the protector of justice for his people. And when he hears this injustice, you can see that I mean, his guilty conscience is starting to erupt. So when David says, this man deserves to die, what does Nathan do? He looks him right in the eyes and says, you are the man. And that is so not a compliment. It's not, you're the man, right? It's, you are the man. Like, boom. You know? So Nathan starts out so quietly. And it's not because Nathan is timid to speak to, to David. He starts out quietly because he knows that um, once David said, this man must die, Nathan knows that he's got him cornered. David was a liar, an adulterer, a murderer. Yet Nathan doesn't come right away in there with guns blazing. Because why? He was wanting to get to the heart of David. He was trying to reflect the grace of God. And wherever possible, God goes for conviction and not condemnation. He didn't confront David in a way that would raise David's defense mechanism so high that it made it difficult for him to repent. He shows such wisdom. I mean, and it speaks to like when we confront someone in a way that feels condemning, it, it's, it, it can make it almost impossible for someone else to repent, to acknowledge that I've messed up. So by how we approach someone, we can be used to help them to see their ways, that they're wrong, help them to repent, help them to experience the grace of God, or we can pile condemnation upon them. So before we confront it, it's always good to check our motive, remembering, I love this verse, John three seventeen. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it, right? So I mean, one of the questions I was asking myself this week, does the way that I confront bring conviction or condemnation? How am I doing at helping other people connect to the grace of God? 
And David is also so much like us when we sin. You know, we can spin these webs of rationalizations or deceptions. We hear all the time people rationalizing their sin. Like, no one knows that I, what I've been going through. I deserve this. Or, it's really not that bad. I'm not really hurting anybody. Or, um, I can't help it. My desires are too strong. Or, it's not my fault. You don't understand my situation. Right? And then once we sin, we have to cover it up saying, well, I have to. I know I'm doing this to protect my family or to protect the company. I mean, I can hear David probably justifying covering up his sin of murder um, with, like, I have to, right? If people find out, it could destroy the whole kingdom. So for them, I have to cover, right? So when you make wrong choices, what kind of pattern do you fall into? Have you helped cover up for yourself? Have you helped cover up for other people? Nathan wisely doesn't try to break through David's defense mechanism because he knows that doesn't get to the heart. And once David is convicted of his sin, then David is very clear at identifying the grievous sins that he committed. I mean, he did not soft-pedal at all. You know, you are the man. Which is why we need to have two things. We need to invite Nathans and be Nathans. And what does that, you know, that means inviting Nathans into your life is like we all have flaws, character deficiencies that we don't know about, right? Um, Hebrews 3 challenges me a lot. It says, it tells us to exhort, which means to confront, one another daily about the way in which we miss the mark or maybe falling into temptation. It's the daily part that I struggle with. Like, I don't know, I I can maybe handle once a month, but daily, okay. Um, But do you have friends that are like Nathan to you? And then we have to step up and be willing to be Nathans to our friends because real relationships mean we share concerns. Like Nathan, we don't just start hitting them over the head, but we ask if they're open to hearing a concern, and we tell them truth in a way that honors them. You know, it's vital for us to invite Nathans and be Nathans. I also love that Nathan started off with a story. It was the hope that David would repent. Not that he would feel bad, but that he would repent and want to change, which leads us to our second lesson from the story. Learn to receive God's absolute powerful force of grace and forgiveness. And I use the word learn because doesn't it take deep truths, take so much time to get mined, to really mine them, to get down into our heart? Um, But before we're going to fully explore explore that lesson, we need to explore the story more from Bathsheba's perspective. Now, Bathsheba has sometimes been depicted as this seductress, like she was out bathing trying to entice or seduce David. Now, if that was the case, the Bible would have made it clear as it did with Potiphar's wife when he tried to seduce Joseph, or when we, you know, we just talked about Tamar, who sat by a roadside waiting for her father-in-law. Furthermore, Nathan would have called her out in the parable he shared with David, but he didn't. The sin lands on David, and the magnitude of his sin cannot be overstated. He exploited her. She was the victim of a powerful man who casually and callously took the precious little that she had. She was the victim of unbridled lust and power. And not only did that result in the death of her family, it started pivotal events that divided David's family, leading to the death of their child, and it was a catalyst for an ugly father against son civil war later in life. Similar to the story of Naomi, whom we talked about last week, Bathsheba's story is one of heartache and loss, the loss of her purity and innocence, the loss of her husband, the loss of a child. Now for Naomi, it was in a foreign land in the face of destitute poverty She felt lost. 
And here we have Bathsheba, and although she becomes queen and in a king's palace, she is just as lost. I mean, other women may have envied her, but behind that opulence of the palace, there was a sordid story of abuse and grief. And maybe some of us can relate to that, particularly around Christmas. You know, we put up all these decorations, and everything looks so pretty and festive and put together. Um, But behind the Christmas lights, behind the picket fences, there can be an ugly story of hurt or conflict or a grieving heart. Maybe there's been some real wrongs that have been done against you, things that have been taken away that never can be replaced, and there's deep loss and grief. So God wants you to know that he sees this and he has a plan for forgiveness and restoration. Now we're going to see how God does this for Bathsheba. But first let's look a little bit at David. Like how did he get to the place where he could experience more restoration from God? His first step was repentance, right? He wrote Psalm 51 in response to this. It is probably the greatest and most complete expression of repentance in the Bible. So I'd encourage you, we don't have the time to get into it today. I mean, it's a whole sermon in itself. I'd encourage you to read Psalm 51. But I love the fact that he repented so thoroughly and so publicly, and that brought transformation and restoration. But I wonder also if David's public repentance, it was made easier because he had a a forefather named Judah that was Tamar's father-in-law, the one that was intimate with his um, daughter-in-law, but openly and publicly repented of his sin, his hypocrisy. I mean, David would have known how Judah's repentance had led to God transforming him and then honoring Judah to be part of the lineage of Jesus, from which Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. How we model our openness to feedback for our behaviors is not only good for us, but it's vital in helping other people, our kids, our co-workers. We need to welcome it. And repentance is such a crucial aspect of our second point of learning to receive God's absolute powerful force of grace and forgiveness. You know, David's story is sometimes used as a sloppy apologetic to excuse our own sin. Like, you know, we sin, we ask for forgiveness, and then, oh, God's going to make it all right, right? No harm, no fall, no big deal. We can just go on with our lives. But that is not what the story teaches us about repentance. If we repent, God does forgive, yet there are consequences. But the good news and the hope that we carry is that we get to walk through those consequences with the grace and help that comes from God, and that makes all the difference. In 2 Samuel 12, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. So David confesses his sin and all of its ugliness, throws himself on the mercy of God, intercedes that that child would not die. And so to try to explain this, I'm going to try to attempt a sports analogy, okay, because I'm trying to expand my my examples and we'll see how this goes. But so let's say this week um, you're a small group, right, and you ask for prayer that the Buckeyes are going to dominate Clemson, okay? So, alrighty, so someone else in the group is from that state up north, right? They take great offense um, at your request, and then a shouting match ensues. And there's slams being thrown each way, which leads you giving a black eye in retaliation to him. And then he breaks your nose, okay? In the chaos, you like, oh, we need to get to the ER. He brings you the ER, and, and you eventually calm down, and you realize the unity as followers of Christ is probably greater than our sports rivalry. So you hug it out. You ask for forgiveness from each other and from God. 
But yet, even after you receive forgiveness from God and each other, what do you have? You still have a broken nose, right? And a black eye. Sin has consequences, and they're pain- it can be very painful. But the hope that we're talking about is Jesus has taken the ultimate sting out of those consequences. So while they are painful, and they can be excruciatingly painful, they are not devastating. Because why? Because Jesus was so devastated so that the consequences of your sin can be redeemed. So this is the challenge that we have when we're talking about this issue. And and I know some of you may be at the point of making some really bad choices, and I don't want to minimize the painful, sometimes irreversible consequences of sin. Yet at the same time, I want to give hope to those that, that are in the midst of those painful circumstances to show you that your pain is painful, yes, but God's goodness, his mercy, his grace is greater than your sin. And God can reweave all the things in your life, even the consequences for your own sin and stupidity, for his perfect plan and your ultimate good. Because the restoration that we see with David is that God took away David's sin. And David would not die, but the baby did. So God's mercy, this whole complicated process, his mercy can sometimes lead us to struggling with, how can God pardon sins that are so horrific? Like it can seem really unfair to the ones that are harmed. Like who was there for Uriah and his family? When I think of David's sin, I think back to college when a friend's fiancé, she was driving with a group of classmates from Oklahoma to California, and during the night she, she was driving and fell asleep at the wheel, and it killed one of her friends. Now that was devastating for everybody. And I watched how she navigated those next few years at college with so many knowing that she was the cause of someone's death. I mean, in their grief, people distanced themselves with her. It was unbearable for her and made it very difficult for her engagement, her fiancé. And how do you live through that? You know, as the years have gone by, she's gone on to live life. She's a wife of a pastor. She's a mother of five children. Her mistake has most definitely shaped her life and her family's life. But it has not haunted her. And it's not because she's not callous or she's in denial of her mistake. But she has had to really live out what it means to receive grace and the forgiveness from God, even when other people don't give it to her. And living out forgiveness with a horrific accident is difficult enough. But David here intentionally caused death. How does he move on from that? Throughout the Bible, we have examples of people who have murdered and committed adultery and even incest. People who did not live faithful to God, yet they were forgiven by God. These examples accentuate a statement that I saw written. It was written in the 1600s by 151 theologians, and they were trying to clarify their beliefs about what is Christianity about. And this is the quote that they gave. As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Do you believe that to be true? Because what they're saying is sin, no matter how big or small, leads to death. But if you repent, even if you are a hitman for the mob, right, you can be forgiven. The Bible shows us that the grace of God runs deeper and wider than most of us will ever know. God's grace is like an ocean. It will never, ever run dry. The limits of God's grace never are reached. We are not in a right relationship with God because of our actions, but because of what Jesus has done. 
Don't you love that verse in Romans where it says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I've struggled with understanding the whole David repentance and his restoration because, you know, I love Uriah. I mean, he was an incredibly great man. So how does David just go on and live life like his sins are forgiven? But my attitude with David reflects my personal struggle with sin and forgiveness. Part of my struggle with sin is I subconsciously, I have like different time requirements, subconsciously, okay, for feeling bad when I mess up. Like if I'm cranky to my kids, I'll apologize and then I may feel bad for about a day, but I I move on, right? If Ross has an argument, I usually up my sin level, okay? Um, I'm a little more rude, selfish, and mean. I can be a real jerk. And um, if I, after I apologize and, you know, repent from, with God and Ross, um, it'll take me maybe three days up to a week before my sense of guilt really feels more relieved. Um, and I know in my head that Jesus has forgiven me, but I get stuck. Um, I recently heard Joyce Meyer say that one of the reasons that we don't grow spiritually is because we stay on a treadmill of guilt. She shared a time when she was struggling with feelings of guilt, and she sensed in her heart that God was saying, Joyce, you've repented, you've been forgiven, so how do you plan to get over this feeling of guilt? And she responded back to God, Well, I will just receive the sacrifice you made for me on Calvary. And she was um, feeling quite spiritual because her response to God even rhymed. (laughs) And um, I thought, well, but in her head, she knew that it was going to take about two to three days before she was going to feel better. And then she sensed God saying in her heart, if that promise of forgiveness is good in two to three days, why isn't it good now? And that's when she realized that what was really going on is that she felt that she had to earn or pay for her forgiveness. Like she had to beat herself up for a certain amount of time, feel miserable for an amount of time in order to be forgiven. So I like what she says. She, she says, if you really want to defeat the devil, if you really want to use your faith for something big, live free from guilt and condemnation. And David did this. He lived forgiveness. And yet, I mean, the consequences were costly. But we can look to David to see how he learned to receive forgiveness, how to move forward in life despite his failings and sins. And that leads to our third and final lesson, that learn to receive God's restoration. Not just his forgiveness, but go for the full haul. Get the restoration. Because after David repents, he intercedes for the life of the child he conceived with Bathsheba. He grieves the death of that child. And afterwards, David goes to Bathsheba and comforts her. In Hebrew, the word comfort means to be sorry, to repent. He comforts her, and she conceives a second time, giving birth to a son named Solomon. So what does the restoration of God, I mean, look like, and what did he want to do for Bathsheba? Well, she receives a second child. I mean, she had been childless for all those years with Uriah, loses her first one, and then she receives a second one. And the Bible says that God loved this child and named him Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord. I think it's really interesting to see how similar this new baby's name is to David's name, which means beloved. You know, as mentioned in the beginning, we saw God's restoration for Bathsheba by being named in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, which says Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. Isn't that curious? Like, first it's... First, I mean, it's, it, he's saying Uriah's wife. Does God reference Uriah here because he's wanting to rub David's nose in his sin? Like, no, it's not really God's style. Um, but maybe God identifies Uriah as a way to honor Uriah for the loss and sacrifice. 
Maybe God wanted to honor the suffering that Bathsheba had gone through by identifying Uriah's name. Or maybe it's because God wants to show how our sin is part of the story and that he can make something beautiful despite it. Second, David had eight wives and many concubines, and he had lots of sons, so God had lots of options, right? So why did he choose Bathsheba's son to be part of the lineage? It's again, it's about how he likes, he loves to bring restoration, particularly, I think, for Bathsheba. And another way we see restoration for Bathsheba is in the relationship she had with her son, Solomon. He becomes the wisest man in the world. And in 1 Kings, we see that Solomon honored and respected his mother. He rose to meet her and bowed to her and seated her next to his throne. I, my kids should read that. Yeah, okay. Um, Bathsheba was a woman who endured much and overcame much by the grace of God. What was the restoration like for David? Well, let's review. David did a lot of great things in his life. There was the whole Goliath thing, right? Lots of victories over the Philistines. He was a king who caused Israel to exceedingly prosper economically and as a nation. He wrote so many of the Psalms. He was a man after God's own heart. But of all the events of David's life, the genealogy points to this incident that David fathered a son through another man's wife who he had killed. This was not just a low point for David. This was a turning point. Because up until this incident, the story of David was one of victory, success, righteousness, and devotion to the Lord. But after this incident, David's story is filled with turmoil. His son sleeps with his sister, and then his brothers are trying to kill each other and fighting for the throne. One son, Absalom, attempts to overthrow David's kingship and publicly sleeps with all of David's concubines. I mean, that's, that's a mess, right? David repented, and he was forgiven of his sins, but there were real, long-lasting consequences. Have you ever made a mistake, and now you have to live with that mistake, and it's changed your life, and you would do anything to make that, take that moment back and press the reset button? Or have you ever had something done to you that has forever changed the course of your life, things that have been taken away that cannot be replaced? That you got put into a messy story and you live in shame and you wish so deeply it could all be erased that you could somehow be spared from all this pain. What kind of consequences are you living with because of your own wrong choices or the wrong choices of someone close to you? This low point is the turning point that stains the rest of David's life. And yet, this is what undoes me. This is what God used to bring the Messiah into the world. Bathsheba should never have become David's wife. She was the wife of Uriah. She should never have brought David a son, but the lineage of Jesus came not in spite of David's sin, but through that sin. We mentioned Tamar, another mother of Jesus, who pretended to be a harlot and successfully seduced her father-in-law, thereby giving birth to Perez, a father of Jesus. It seems like God is going out of his way to show us that he is greater than our sin. And he is greater than, the, than sins that have been done to us. And the Messiah did not come because God's people got it right, because they surely did not. Jesus didn't come through a perfectly righteous bloodline. He came through a chosen bloodline that was marked by sin and brokenness, which tells us what? That our mistakes cannot stop God's plans. You are just not that powerful. And other people's mistakes cannot stop God's plans. Now, Ross has shared um, this point before, but my oldest um, showed me Kitsugi. 
I may be saying that wrong, and I'm so sorry. Um, but it's a Japanese art um, that they've had since the 1400s where they repair b- broken pottery with powdered gold or silver. And instead of trying to hide where it's broken and avoid seeing those scars, Kitsugi teaches us that broken objects are not something to hide but to display because broken parts are part of the story. Now our God has a specialty in this. Like he doesn't choose to make beautiful pots from perfect clay. Instead, he chooses as his medium broken shards that others may want to throw away. He doesn't hide cracks and imperfections, but he makes those very things the charm or the beauty of the art. And it tells us again, our mistakes cannot stop God's plan. Other mistakes that people make cannot stop God's plan. In fact, God may use our pain, our scars, the broken shards of our life for his purpose to display his grace. So as we close, I'd like us to listen to another psalm that David wrote that helped him, and I think it can help us more deeply grasp the truth of God's grace and goodness. So if you're comfortable, I'd like you to close your eyes, and I want you to think of one area that you continue to, to mess up in, an area that you struggle with, some form of sin. And as I read the scripture, I want you to listen to what God is saying to you about how he deals with you and your sin. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse you nor remain angry forever. He does not punish you for all your sins. He does not deal harshly with you as you deserve. For his unfailing love towards you who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed your sins as far from you as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to you who fear him. For he knows how weak you are. He remembers that you are only dust. And therefore there is now no condemnation for you who is in Christ Jesus Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. God, we are so grateful for who you are. Thank you that you are so merciful and so gracious. You are bigger than anything that has ever been done to us, anything we've ever done. Lord, we thank you so much. We ask that you would go into every place in our hearts. And help us to truly experience the freedom that you bought for us. We so love you. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we say amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.